morning. Good to see you all here this morning on the first Sunday of spring. Do you feel it? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 1 Peter 1, 17. Tonight, uh, there'll be a continuation of the video series at 6 o'clock, Bring Finger Foods. Uh, I also have a note here that says we're running low on pop, and that's in regard to the next week's um, uh, gathering, but also for tonight. So we're running low on pop. Uh, tonight, 6 o'clock for the uh, video series. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Andrea's number again there for the prayer chain. Sunday, April 7, after communion, we'll be having pizza and a movie in the fellowship hall, bring a dish to pass, and afterwards there'll be an Easter egg hunt for the children. Friends and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are welcome. Sign up on the helps board uh, for the pizza order, and also the cost for that is $3 a person for pizza. So $3 a person, uh, pizza and a movie, and then again uh, this evening, and for that we need we need pop. Um, how's the candy thing going? Are we getting candy in? There's some yeah, more. Okay. 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 So let's keep going on that. So donate candy. It's in the foyer there. Um, Days of Praise are here for the next quarter, so you can pick that up on the foyer table. Ladies Retreat, that's this weekend, March 28 and 29. Where I'm sorry, where is that? Dundee. It's in Dundee, that's right, thank you. In Dundee, and I'm sure you've all gathered and have your carpooling and stuff set for that by now. So um, You see the financial note there. All right, I think I've got everything on my sheet. Anything I've missed out there? Omitted. Our scripture for meditation, Second Thessalonians, chapter three, six through eighteen.
Let's stand together and open our service with prayer. Dan, can I ask you to open today? morning. Will you take your red Trinity hymnal this morning and turn to number 532, 532 in the red. Before you even sit down, actually, it was the hand with the hymnal. 
of a favorite hymn this morning. Yes, Mr. Lewis, do you have a favorite hymn? 569 in the Brown. 569 in the Brown. And is there a reason for this hymn this morning? Okay, five, six, nine, in the brown. Good hymn. Hmm? Yeah, it's a battle hymn, right? Yes, battle hymn of the Republic. All right. the desire.
Scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter. We'll be reading in the first chapter, verses 10 through 16. Uh, let's all stand. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 16. It's 1887 in your black pew Bible. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Amen. Remain standing. Take your red hymnal again, the the Trinity, excuse me, and turn to number 493. 493.
Thank you. You may be seated. There's one more verse. Oh, there's one more verse. I'm really <laughs> sorry. Very good job of next page, yeah. 494. Thank you. Go ahead and do the intro, Jared. Him? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Not this morning. Okay, there it is. Verse 5. <laughs> Our scripture text this morning is 1 Peter, the first chapter, and we'll be looking at verses 10 and following. In our last lesson, we discover that persecution and trial does not exempt us from striving to live a holy life. There's no justification for the believer to say, I'm getting beat up every day for my face, so I think God can cut me a little slack if I am not quite living up to his standards. That's indicating that there should be justification for indulgence in sin because... We're being taking, taking our, our lumps from the world for the sake of Christ. That's kind of a warped sense of self-compensation. If I suffer a lot, I should be allowed to sin a little. Think about that. It's wrong thinking. We talked about getting our head on straight. Right actions only proceed from right thinking. You can't play in the world and expect to remain clean. The world changes us. We do not change it. We talked about preparing the mind for godly action. And to do that, be self-controlled. Distance yourself from the world's philosophy of life. God's thoughts are not the world's thoughts. He tells us that. (laughs) He doesn't think the way we think. Say, well, how do I know what God thinks? Look in his word. He tells us what he thinks on every subject of life. It's in the Bible. He spoke by the prophets and told us what he thinks about everything in life. 
so that we can put on the mind of Christ. And that's the second point we made, that we should live our life with a fixed hope on Jesus Christ. The reality of his return, the outpouring of his grace at that time. Cultivate a life of holiness in anticipation for the return of Jesus. Now that's what I want to talk about today. Being holy in all you do. It's, they, these are subjects we don't much hear preaching on in our day. The subject of holiness. But we need to hear it because the writer of Hebrews says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, he doesn't mean that we won't appear before him as he judges the earth and judges the world. He means It means he won't. we won't see him with gladness of heart. It'll be a terry thing, a terrorist thing to stand before the Lord. We will be shaken in our boots if we are not living holy lives. So we want his holiness upon us. Well, as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement for this study. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You tell us in your word what you're thinking. And since you don't change, the Bible also tells us that. So your word yesterday is the same word as today. That means that what you taught, what you believed in, what you stand for, what has always been, and what's revealed in the word of God from the very lips of our Savior, now are just as true today. God does not change. If he changed, it would indicate that he wasn't perfect. But he is perfect. So he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind, doesn't change his thinking. He knows all things. He has planned all things. And we need to understand that. And that's the beauty of our God, is that whatever he has said in his word is just as valid for today as the day you wrote it through Peter, your apostle, one of your disciples. Pray that you'll bless us with an understanding in Christ's name. Amen. We have a charge in our text today, be holy in all you do. Be holy in all you do. Holiness, wow. What can we say about holiness? Well, this has been a subject in church history for years and years and years and years, dating way back to uh, pre-Reformation days. So... It's not like it's something brand new to us. But just as in today, there were errors back then concerning the subject of holiness. One such error was what I'm calling the monastic error. Monastic, M-O-N-A-S-T-I-C, error. In our study, we began to define holiness and we discovered that the concept of the original language, the Greek language here, is one of separation. Separation from the world, that's from something, but also separation to something, and that's to God. From the world to God. That's the idea of separation or holiness. During the pre-Reformation days of bishops and popes and the like, the visible church held out as the highest form of holy living The monastic model. You say, well, what's the monastic model? Well, the monastic model, let me read it to you. This is right out of the Westminster College Education. 
Monks took three vows. Here it is. Monks, monastic, get it? From the same Greek word. Here's the three vows. Poverty, meaning you didn't have any personal property, but all things were owned by all of the community monks. So if some guy wanted to come in and take your pen or take your pillow or what up, you couldn't say, hey, hey, that's mine. He would say, no, 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 no. It's ours. No personal possessions. Everything was owned by the community. Second vow, chastity. Well, that's a rare word in our day, but it means no sex. Even if a person were married, but when he entered into the monastery, he gave up sexual relations with his wife. Third vow, obedience. Now, obedience to the abbot. Abbot is the male word. Abbess is the female word. So a person could be in the monastery, so you would be under the control of the abbot. Or you, if a, you were a woman, you would be in the nunnery, so you would be under the control of the abbess. So, well, what's that word mean? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word, Abba, meaning father, or abbess, female word, the idea of the mother. Well, who's the abbot? Who's the abbess? Well, it would be a person that was elected to that position by the community of the parishioners. The word monastic and its derivative, monastery, comes from the Greek word monos, meaning alone or isolated. When I was growing up, I'm telling on myself here a little bit, when I was uh, growing up in the 60s, the new invention was stereo sound. I'm dating myself, aren't I? It was marked as being far superior to monaural sound, single or isolated channel of music, as opposed to two or more channels of music, stereo sound. Well, the monasteries developed on the premise that in order for one to find true peace with God, one had to isolate oneself from the world, which meant living in cloistered communities of brethren with like goals, like spiritual aspirations. Thus, monasteries were built for the men, nunneries were built for the women, and both institutions became the self-assumed sequestered living quarters for men or women who dedicated themselves to the study of God and to prayer. So the idea was, you know, if you really want to study God and learn about God, you should go to a monastery if you're a man. You should go to a nunnery if you're a woman. You Renounce your family, renounce the world, go live behind these walled cities, and you can get right and get holy with God. These monasteries or nunneries, they had their own libraries, they had their own gardens, their own trades in operation, everything to assure self-sufficiency. 
and contact with the outside world was limited to helping the poor, administering herbal medicines for the sick, and getting out once in a while to lecture on religious themes. That's, that was their life. Living in monasteries was intentionally rustic. It was free from creature comforts. It was all part of the philosophy of that day that asceticism, self-denial, is the way to obtain favor with God. And the most influential rule for monastic living was written by a man named St. Benedict in 530 A.D whose rule of conduct, his book, listed more than 70 regulations (laughs) governing everything from where a person was to sleep, how many could be in a room, what they were to eat, how many times a day they would pray, what enterprises they would engage in to help, help the monastery advance, how much food would be served each day, the order and number of psalms you would recite in your devotions, and so on, and so on, and so on. Seventy-some rules. Think about it. Here's some rules. I'll give it to you. Got an idea of what asceticism is all about. Rule on owning property. Bennett writes, he should, the guy that's in the monastery... He should have absolutely not anything. (laughs) Notice how that's worded. Absolutely not anything. Let me read on. Neither a book, nor tablets, nor a pen, nothing at all. For indeed, it is not allowed to the monks to have their own bodies or wills in their own power. But all things necessary they must expect from the Father... They, they mean the abbot. By the way, they're getting that from the Hebrew word Abba, which means father. The father of the abbot, who was an elected official from the community of the monastery. Nor is it allowed to have anything which the abbot did not give or permit. Kind of sounds like a dictatorship, doesn't it? All things shall be common to all, as it is written, let not any man presume or call anything his own. But if anyone shall have been discovered delighting in this most evil vice, wow, being warned once or again, if he do not amend, if he doesn't change his ways, you see, let him be subjected to punishment. So, if you were in a monastery under the control of an abbot. He set the rules as to what you could or could not have. And if you violated that, you got, hello, one strike, hello, two strike, hello, three strike, you're going to get in trouble. You're out. You're disciplined, or whatever the thing would be. Rule on making a mistake in the liturgy. They were abbots, so they were doing what I'm doing, preaching on a Sunday morning, whatever, teaching in the school, classrooms, and so on. But if they made a mistake in the liturgy, as they're teaching and preaching, if anyone, I'm reading the rule, if anyone in saying a psalm, 
a response or an antiphon or a lesson, make a mistake, if he makes a mistake, unless he humble himself there before all, giving satisfaction, he, be, he shall be subjected to greater punishment as one who was unwilling to correct by humility that in which he had erred by neglect. If your children for such a fault, you shall be whipped. Oh, it doesn't sound like I would want to live in the days of the medieval church, do you? But that's the way it was. The premise of all monastic life was and is that the world of which the Bible instructs us to be separated from is the material world of people and things, especially things, because that which is material is considered to be evil. Because it is material. Therefore, we should endeavor to isolate ourselves from as much unnecessary creature comforts as possible. And on the other side, to devote ourselves to the study of God, to prayer, to good works. Because in this way, we will find peace and salvation. Now this philosophy, though peppered with Bible quotes, as we have noted, was and is an outgrowth of the view that deprivation of the body is the way to holiness. It's the way to a life of godlikeness. And behind this view was the Gnostic error, spelled with a G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, the Gnostic heresy of that day, which taught that anything material in nature was inherently evil simply because it was of the earth or it was man-made. So if it's earthly, if it's of this sphere of this dimension if it's something that man has made it's evil it's evil it's evil because man's evil so if you want to be truly holy you had to rid yourself of dependence upon and love of the material for only when you live life in the spiritual realm the ethereal realm only then can you please god all material items are intrinsically evil, so get rid of the goods. Get rid of them. Well, how do you get rid of them? The monastic life was the answer in, midi in medieval times. Just cut, 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 cut. Cut those things out of your life. Unless we become smug and condescending, I would point out, medieval life or not, that the beginning of the 20th century, our day and age, the fundamentalists among us also looked upon material items, wine, certain clothing, certain jewelry, certain automobiles, as having or being considered to be evil or not proper course of conduct for Christians who wish to live a holy life separated from God. 
I remember having a discussion with my late brother, John Tucker. He was raised in a, in a Mennonite community in Ohio. So the Mennonite teenagers, they loved what was neat and sharp and bright. And they would drive around in bright red cars, bright yellow, green, whatever. All month leading up to the Communion Sunday, Sunday. But before Communion Sunday got there, they would all paint their cars black so that they could go to Communion Sunday and be in a holy state. You see where all this leads? It's the idea that holiness is external. It's in the material things. You can drive in your red car, your yellow car, your green car all week, all month in fact, but come Communion Sunday, which in our tradition is the first Sunday of the month, they went and painted their cars black. Come Monday, they'd paint them back bright yellow, bright red, whatever. Must have cost them something, but I'm sure they had tradesmen that knew how to do those things. That's monasticism. Mono, single, eyed. This is the way to be holy. Woo, you, you. Tunnel vision. You can't do this and be holy. You can't do that and be holy. You gotta be doing just this to be holy. Well, what's the biblical response to monasticism? Well, number one, we need to recognize that the Bible does warn us about the dangers of pursuing wealth, for example. That's true. John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world. Don't love those things. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. The world and its desires, they pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2, verse 15 and following. Well, the psalmist writes, Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. That he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish. And they leave their wealth to others. Psalm 49 verse 5 and following. And the wise man Solomon says this. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Negative man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. 
This too is a grievous evil. A man, as he comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind. All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13 following. And I think Solomon's being very practical there and very straightforward. You didn't bring anything in this world with you. You're not going to take anything out of this world. So you need to really evaluate, is this, is this what life is all about? Things, 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 things. Paul taught Timothy, his protege, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. James warned the wealthy of his audience. Here's what he writes. Now listen, you rich people. Weep, wail. Because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will testify against you. And eat your flesh like fire. What's the corrosion? Here it is. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. James 5, 1 through 6. Well, that sounds like the land barons, doesn't it? That just, boy, they, they put the screws to their workers. Worked them long hours and paid them pittance. While they themselves were getting richer and richer. So James takes them to task, and rightly so. The text is talking about dishonest gain, much of the, like the Proverbs talk about. And the thought is that such people are so driven for money that their conscience is set aside in their pursuit. They don't care if they hurt people that are under them. Well, the underlings, you know, though we just sweep them away. They're just so much fodder. Now, admittedly, what all of these texts are saying is that wealth is temporal. Life is uncertain. Riches cannot buy salvation for you or for others. The pursuit of money may divert you from pursuing true life of peace by setting your focus on things rather than on God. And finally, when you die, nothing you own or have accumulated will mean a hell of beans to commend you to God. And you can't take any of it with you. You can't say, well, looky here. Look at my bank account. Look at the niceties around which 
I have surrounded myself. I remember watching years ago the um, History Channel, and they were uncovering the tombs of Pharaoh. Tut, Tutkin, or whatever his name was, I forget. The boy, Pharaoh. I think it was like 19, 18, 19 years old. Anyway, when they opened his tomb, it was loaded with what? Gold, silver, mummified pets, cats, dogs, plush lounge seats and beds and so forth. It is a pagan concept, Pharaoh's. It's a pagan concept to think you can take it all with you. And all you need to do when you die is surround yourself with the luxury things and all will be well with your soul. Well, it won't be if you don't know God. So the monastic error, there is the danger to pursue being wealthy, being wealthy. Secondly, the other swing it the other way, poverty, poverty now, is not commended as the means to be holy. Oh, you want to be holy? Then you need to be poor. Poor, holy, they go together. That's what was taught in medieval history. Israel about to enter into the promised land. The Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time that he's counted. Then no plague will come on him when you number them. Each one will cross over to those already counted. Then you're there to give a half shekel. It's a form of money. But it's by weight, not not coinage, but by weight. Goes on. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over those 20 years old and older are to be given an offering, are to give this offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. That's the worship tent. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. Exodus 30, verse 11 and following. See the principle here. The poor were under the same financial requirements as the rich in this business of atonement. They all had the same spiritual obligation. The poor were not exempt. They could come up with a half a shekel. That's what God was saying. Solomon writes, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord's the maker of them all. A prudent man sees danger and he takes refuge. But the simple keep going and they suffer for it. Humility and the fear of the Lord, that bring wealth and honor and life. 
What brings honor and wealth and life? Humility and the fear of the Lord. It isn't poverty that commends a person to God. Again, Solomon writes, many are the plans in a man's heart. Many are the plans in a man's heart. But it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. What a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Proverbs 19, verse 21 and following. I want you to know that it isn't poverty that commends a person to God. He says so. But the fear of the Lord. Reverential awe and respect for the Lord. That prevents a man from being a liar. That's what commends a person to God. Again, Solomon says, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. Proverbs 28, verse 6. You see what he's doing. He's lining out what should be valued by us. Is it wealth? Or it's a right relationship with God? Again, he writes, Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. How'd you get your money? Solomon is saying. Well, I don't have much money. I have little. Yeah, but how'd you get it? Well, honestly, worked in the fields or... Well, at my trade, in other words, you worked righteously. That's good. A little's okay because you lived righteously. But that's better than much gain, but you cheated everybody to get there. You lied and clawed your way to preeminence. Now, when we read these scriptures, there is nothing in these scriptures which teaches that being poor either naturally or contrived, makes a person more holy in behavior than a person of means. They aren't saying that. In fact, poverty, like wealth, has its own temptation to sin. Do you know that? It does. Augur, A-G-U-R, that's his name, in Proverbs 30, prayed a prayer, and his prayer is quite revealing. Here it is. He says, two things I ask of you, O Lord. Two things. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehoods and lies far from me. Now here's his two things. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Whoa, did I read that right? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. 
Otherwise, now here's his reasoning. Otherwise, I may have too much. And I would disown you and say, well, who is the Lord? See, that's that haughty spirit that comes with, oh, I got money in the bank. I don't need God. He says, I don't want that. Or, or here's the other part of the coin. I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Proverbs 30, verse 7 and following. I wonder if we, <laughs> if we, we think like that when we pray. Lord, the pendulum can swing two ways. It can swing way over here or it can swing way back over here. Well, I'm asking that it doesn't go there or there because if I'm rich and got a lot of money to burn, that might cause me to say, oh, who needs God? <laughs> I don't need God. I got everything I want. Or it swings the other way. I'm poor. I don't have two nickels to rub against each other. I might be tempted to steal or embezzle funds from the company. I don't want to be either here or there. I want to just have my daily bread. You remember that Jesus, though poor himself, did not teach. He did not teach that poverty was the way to holiness before God. He didn't teach that. Here's his words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be humble. It means to be meek like Christ. Not arrogant, not self-assuming, not demanding. Not a tyrant. And then secondly, the ascetic lifestyle is condemned as a means of obtaining a holy life. Let me read it for you. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and they're going to follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been Seared is with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry. They order them to abstain from certain foods. Which God created to be received with thanksgiving. By those who believe in who follow the truth. For everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Because it is consecrated by the word of God. And by prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers. You will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godly myths and old wives' tales. Rather than, rather train yourself to be godly. He's written that to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. I want you to observe the asceticism. No marriage... No dietary restrictions. He handles it. He hits those things. Paul says such things are taught by demons. 
by hypocritical liars. He classifies them with godly myths and old wives' tales. That's the opposite of training in godliness. But we have that all the time in society, in religion. Well, if you really want to be holy, you know, that's that cloistered mentality again. You'll just sell everything. You'll become poor. Give everything to the church. Live in a monastery. Deprive yourself of the creature comforts and so on and so on. Paul again writes in Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter, I'm reading scripture, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, verse 17. Or again in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, he writes, Foods do nothing to bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and we are no better if we do. Well, that ought to be pretty simple, right? The writer of Hebrews writes, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. Well, that's pretty clear. Hebrews 13, verse 9. While Adam and Eve began as vegetarians, after the flood, from Noah on down, the new regulation was this. Let me read it for you. Everything, God's speaking here, everything that lives and moves Plants don't do that. But everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Genesis 9, verse 3. And that was from the flood on right down to our day. That rule has never been changed. Boy, we have people that have really gone awry on a lot of things with regard to diet and drink and all of those things. It's the way to live holy is to stop eating this and stop drinking that. And, you know, they've missed the boat completely. Again, Paul writes in Colossians 2, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? The world's rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all designed to perish with use because they are based on human commands and human teachings. Wow. Such regulations, indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom with self-imposed worship, false humility, harsh treatment of the body, but these things lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They're not going to make you holy. Colossians 2, verse 20 and following. 
how do we get so messed up? <laughs> we have these verses in the scripture that are clear. It's not what you eat. It's not how you deprive your body of certain creature comforts. Again, Paul writes, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They think they know things. They're going to teach you fables. (laughs) These promote, I'm still reading scripture, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 6. Boy, there's a lot of meaningless talk in religious circles in our day. How can people miss the boat like this? Well, they're not studying the book. Again, Paul writes, Timothy, I want you to guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing idea of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20 and 21. Oh, and Paul's other protege, Titus, was told how to respond to the Cretans, the false teachers that he was working with on the Isle of Crete. Here's what he said. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted... And do not believe then nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Titus 1, verse 13 and following. Isn't it something? We all have this tendency just to follow a certain man or a certain theologian or theological leader. and So whatever his fupas are, then we adapt them as our fupas and if he can't eat this, I won't eat that. If he can't drink this, I can't drink that. If he can't go here, I can't go there. All of these texts and more make it clear that an ascetic lifestyle in which people deprive the body or inflict it with intentional pain and hardship or promote restrictive diets or teach multiple spiritual paths to salvation through keeping the Old Testament law regulations, or they advocate various abstinences like clothing or food or beverages or even sexual relationships, all in the name of God, all in the name of being more holy. Well, guess what? All of these things individually or combined have an appearance of godliness, says Paul. They look, they look good. But, here's Paul, They are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Colossians 2, verse 23 and following. 
And in following such things, the actual reverse has occurred. He says they have wandered from the faith. 1 Timothy 6, verse 21. I wish I could say, well, this, that, this is just in Paul's day. This is just in Peter's day. No, it's in our day. There's people everywhere who claim to be Christians, and they got their rules. They made up what you can eat, what you can drink, where you can go, where you can't. This is holy. This is not holy. This is of God. This is not of God. They're not using the word of God. They're just using their viewpoints or the viewpoints of someone else who has taught them. All right, then how do we have holy living? How is it implemented? Well, number one, refuse conformity to the evil desires once pursued in ignorance. Verse 14. And we don't have to guess what those evil desires are. We studied last week that we have to get our heads on straight. We have to think right before we can do right. Makes sense. Evil desires are part of our old self, are part of our old... Self-gratification, pleasure-seeking, selfishness, all of that. And no one is exempt from this, not me, not you. Even the Apostle Paul gave this testimony about himself. Listen to it. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Oh, wait a minute, Paul, are you so... uh, You're saying you can't do better? He's saying I can't do better. Well, what's going on with you? Well, I desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He goes on. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. (laughs) And the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Romans 7, verse 18 and 19. Bless your heart, brethren. This is the Apostle Paul. And he's fighting a war within himself. He's got the desires that are right, but he he can't get his body and his mind to work in cooperation with what he knows. So it's a war. It's a battle. Now, holy actions would be more natural if we didn't have to do battle with the old sinful nature. But the reality is that, like Paul, we are constantly contending for righteousness against the flesh, which is very sinful, and it loves it. I love my sin. I don't want to give it up. You can love righteousness and commit wickedness. Did you know that? We do it every day, and it is frustrating to every Christian who understands God's call to be holy. We want to be holy, but we can't pull it off. Oh, and by the way, Satan loves this about us. He just loves this about us. He knows the flesh is ever-present, and so all of his temptations are just a hair's breadth away from what we once were. And what we once loved, a hair's breath away. Peter calls this a lifestyle based on ignorance, verse 14. 
And Paul echoes the same thought in writing to the Ephesian church. So I tell you this, he writes, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, the non-Christians, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more, 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 more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Ephesians 4, 17 and following. James writes, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. Peter demonstrates that his people were already seeing victory in this area. He writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousings. Carousings is drinking parties and detestable idolatry. And they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, the same style of debauchery. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. First Peter 4, the first five verses. What's going on here? Well, the world can see in these Christians' lives that something radical has changed. It's the weekend, and they don't want to party anymore. They don't want to go get drunk with the boys. They don't want to be involved in immoral acts. So clearly Peter's audience was already having victory in much of this because their old friends could see the difference in their lives and they began to badmouth them because they refused to party on the weekends with the same old sinful behavior. And victory begins with a refusal to conform to our old sinful patterns. With gospel light, we now know better, and if you know better, you can do better. You can do better if you know better. And that's the second point, that holy living is implemented through holy actions. Actions follow thoughts, so the thinking has to be reformed first, but once we are thinking right, then we're going to be able to do right. Verse 15. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Now as soon as we start talking about doing, we involve the body. 
You can have great thoughts, righteous thoughts, pure thoughts, God-honoring thoughts. But until those thoughts surface in actions, they remain idealistic and they're unproductive. You've got to do better than just think straight. I was working outside on my property one weekend. And a cable man was uh, hanging from a ladder working on installing new lines for a neighbor. He had a tool bag strapped to his waist, you know, one of those leather pouch things, an electric drill dangling from a cord, which he'd pull up every once in a while when he needed to use the cord, and then he'd just drop it, and it would hang on the cord and dangle there. He had assortment of wrenches and screwdrivers in this leather pouch that he was wearing. And as he worked, I noticed an older man standing on the ground under the wire with his arms crossed, Leaning on the fence. Ah, na, 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 na. Well, this drove me nuts. I went over to inquire what they were doing, and I thought I, I thought I would have a little fun. So I said to the older man on the ground, "So, what is your role in all of this?" And before he could answer. The man on the ladder said, oh, he's the thinker, but I'm the doer. <laughs> and the older man rubbed his belly and he said, well, when you get to be my age, you earn the right to supervise while the young'uns do all the work. That may be the union talking, I don't know. But it isn't Christianity talking. Paul writing to the Roman church just one chapter before he confessed his own struggle with carrying out the good he wanted to do. He wrote this. The death he died, referring to Jesus. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, that is, consider yourself to be dead to sin, free from its power, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Where does sin reign? In our mortal body. Don't let that happen so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer, here it is, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6 verse 10 and following. Parts of the body? What's that? That's the action side of living. That's the cable man on the ladder. Not the elderly man leaning on the fence with his arms crossed. We have a lot of parts to our body. Our tongues. What should we do with our tongues? We should speak kindly, not harshly. We should bless people, not curse people. Our speech should be wholesome, not full of obscenities. We should build up, not tear down. We should give out the good news of the gospel, 
not condemnation, not judgment. What about our hands? Well, they're for lifting, they're for carrying, flipping through the pages of a Bible, working, not idle, helping out, not obstructing, a gentle touch, a hug, not brawling, not beating up on people. A lot of wonderful things we can do with our hands. What about our legs? Well, walking in the paths of righteous, not in the ways of sinners, for rescue of those that are endangered, fleeing from such things as temptation to impurity. Our legs. What about our feet? We can relocate when in danger of falling into sin. Mobility. Not just standing still, marking time as though we had all the time in the world to complete our task for God. Mobility. Our sexual organs for procreation, to raise up a godly generation, to love our spouse, to become one with him or her, to prevent adultery. Wandering eyes and lustful deeds in us to keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. We can use the parts of our body in righteous ways. Paul indicates that such was not always the way we use our bodies. He says, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural self. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now I want you to offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Do you remember your old life? Was it that wonderful? He answers his own question. He says, those things resulted in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Wow, those are two wonderful benefits. For the wages of sin is death, he says. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, 19 and following. Brethren, there is no doing in holiness without engaging all the body parts. And they must be engaged by the Holy Spirit to implement obedience to Christ's teachings. You have the Holy Spirit. And you have his power resident in you if you're a Christian. But you must seek his empowerment in prayer and in resting in the tendency not to flip back to the old sinful ways that you love so much. It takes Holy Spirit power to do that. Your ignorance is gone. You know the wages of sin is death. You know that. You know 
that the only benefit in using the body for self-indulgence is shame and death. You know that. So you have the choice and the obligation to align your thinking with God's and then submit your body parts as instruments of righteousness leading to holiness and eternal life. And this victory Christ won for you at the cross. So sin is not to have dominion over you anymore. To the unbelieving I ask, how important is this command from God? Be holy because I am holy. The Bible answers the question for you. Here it is. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15. Either you get control of the flesh by the Spirit of God or it's going to damn you. That's what's going to happen. Let me read it to you again from another text in Galatians 5. Paul writes, the acts, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Oh, and just in case they're not so obvious to you, he lists them. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Any of those sins find a place in your life? He goes on, I warn you as I did before, for those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19 and following. We need the Spirit of God so we don't live like Christ died for all these sins, for other lists that are in the scripture of sins. And now he commands you to repent and turn to God for forgiveness and cleansing and start a new life by thinking straight. And when you think righteously, you'll do righteously. No one can wash themselves clean of this moral filth. But the blood of Christ can cleanse you and set you free from all shame and the wages of sin, which is death. I want you to come alive in Christ. Come alive. You think you're living now. You're not living if you don't know Christ. You're just breathing the air and going through life. But real spiritual life, being at peace with God, Knowing him as Savior. The hope of eternal life with him. That's the part of every true Christian. Father, we thank you for your word. How precious it is to us. But how, how rebellious we are, too, to your word. We think we know better. We don't. We are dependent upon you. Open our eyes and let us see. Let us see that where we're headed in our flesh 
condemnation and trial. But if we will come to Christ and confess our sins, he will plunge all of that sin into the cleansing blood of his cross work. He will apply the payment that he made for sinners to our lives and he will set us free. Even so come, Lord Jesus, into the struggling heart today. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 518. The Red Hymnal 518. Let's stand. The words may be uh, new to you, but uh, the tune is familiar. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. 
Now, you can pay for your own sins. You can. But it will take an eternity in hell to do it. Why? Because your life is full of sin. There's nothing holy about your blood. But the blood of Christ has this healing power. Why? Because we're talking about the sinless Son of God who gave his life. So now if I have his sinful, sinless life applied to me, if his blood will cover me, his sinless blood cover me, God can look upon me with favor. Not because of me, not because I deserve it or have done anything wonderful, but because his son has done everything wonderful. See, that's where faith comes in. I'm not trusting me to get me into a right relationship with God. I am trusting his son Jesus, whose shed blood was perfect, to cover me and atone for my sins. Why would you do that, pastor? Because the Bible commands me to do that. It says that salvation is found only in that faith. I'm not looking to myself. I'm not good enough in myself. Neither are you, nor anyone for that matter. And you can work in holy works all your life. We talked a little bit about that this morning. The monastic order, they think, oh boy, if they could pray right or be in a monastery, if they could eat certain foods or drink certain beverages, if they wear certain clothes or not certain clothes or whatever and whatever, they could be holy, holy enough to please God. What a bunch of rubbish. Think about it. The material things that we can do that's going to make us right with God. God is perfect. He needs a perfect sacrifice. Where are you going to find a perfect sacrifice among sinners? You're not. But there's one. That's his own son, his sinless son of God. So if you put your faith in him, it means whatever that son has done to appease God the Father for, for sin, that accrues to you. David... Godly David talks about that. You can read about it in Romans 2. May the Lord show you, may he open your eyes to, there's a better way than you striving, trying, 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 trying to please God, trying to do the very impossible. Because guess what? It's already been done. You just got to believe it and trust it. Lord, give us that faith. Amen. See you tonight in our video series downstairs.
saying Find the biggest phone and see if Jenny's and we were home one day and we left. Oh, 